You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor Matt Myers. After a week off for the Thanksgiving holiday, we are back, and the hot stove has finally started moving. The Braves have made some moves. We'll talk about that. Try to figure out if Robinson Cano and Madison Bumgarner are actual possible trade candidates. Bryce Harper's defense is a huge topic. I dug into that with some StatCast data. We'll get to that. We're actually going to talk about Lance Lynn being interesting, which if you listen to our show last year, was the exact opposite of what we said a year ago. And finally, the Arizona Fall League just wrapped up, and there's some pretty fun stack cast numbers that come out of there. I'm excited to look into those. First, the Braves. Uh, Brian McCann, one year, $2 million. Josh Donaldson, one year, $23 million. I love that contract. By the way, we talked about Donaldson previously. Obviously, he's been a superstar. Uh, calf injuries limited him over the last year or two. One year for $23 million. It's fantastic. I love it for both sides. I love it. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And it's like, it's not that, the thing is, it's like, it's not that much more than the qualifying offer. And like, if you could have, if, if you if you had been able to, if the Indians had been able to offer him the qualifying offer, they would have. And if he'd accepted, they would have been like, okay. So are, are you saying the Blue Jays should have just held on to him and then offered him the qualifying offer? Possibly. They didn't uh, really get anything back for him when they traded him. No, they got a little bit of salary relief because twenty three million is exactly what he made last year. Um so even like a month of it was a nice yeah, I guess a nice a nice chunk of salary relief. But um I I think this is a a shrewd move for the Braves. I'm a believer in Donaldson for two thousand nineteen. And um he not only does he fit the team, they they could use an upgrade at third base and an infield depth. Additionally though, they still have Johan Camargo there to come back and fill in at third if Donaldson's injury issues return we've talked about how when he got to cleveland he looked like the donaldson of old there's all sorts of reasons to like this deal for the braves not to mention the fact alex anthopoulos knows him well from his toronto days so if there's a, a guy who sort of feels like he can know and trust donaldson it's him there's 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 a lot of a lot of positive uh vibes here what else i like about it is uh they have a pretty highly touted third base prospect in Austin Riley, and this doesn't really block him. It's a one-year deal. Austin Riley is 21 and has played half a season at AAA, right? It is not the end of the world if he goes back to AAA for a couple more months, comes up later in the season, um, maybe starts the next year. And, you know, we talked about Donaldson, I think, like two or three weeks ago, so we're not going to rehash it all. But uh, he was a very different player with Toronto early in the year when he's playing through pain than when he was with Cleveland later in the year. Uh, with Toronto early in the season, he had a 105 weighted runs created plus and a 28% strikeout rate. With Cleveland, a 149 weighted runs created plus and a 17% strikeout rate. Small samples, obviously, uh, but if you look at his expected weighted on base over the last few years, in 2015, 16, and 17, hovered around 400, which is really, really good. With Cleveland last year, 401. And with Toronto last year, 306. So, you know, I'm not going to put too much in the 60 plate appearances he had with Cleveland. I know which of those numbers looks like an outlier. And to me, it's the early season uh, with Toronto, with the obvious caveat that uh, we're just talking about his hitting. And if you remember, he could barely throw the ball across the diamond early last year. And there's no DH in the National League. So that is the risk here. But for one million, well, for one year, uh, and obviously a nice salary for Donaldson, that's a risk absolutely worth taking. Although, you know, we've seen Freddie Freeman play third base before. So, you know, yes. if things go bad, they could just flip. How about third Donaldson at first? <laughs> How funny would that be? Man, I love everything about that. Um, one interesting wrinkle about this contract is, you know, there are two stipulations by which you cannot get a qualifying offer. One of which is if you were traded during the season, or two, if you've received the qualifying offer before. So Donaldson couldn't get it this year because he was traded during the season. However, if he stays with the Braves, 
has a big year, they can give him a qualifying offer, and they could recoup a draft pick if they get a big year out of him and he goes and signs sure. elsewhere. That, I mean, that's part of the reason I was surprised at the one-year deal, obviously before I found out how much he was going to make, um, because next year the third base class could include Anthony Rendon and Nolan Arenado, and then if he's out there a year older, maybe with a qualifying offer on his head, I don't know what that looks like next year, but the caveat for that is uh, if he has the qualifying offer on him, it means he had a good year. <laughs> so. Yes, and he, I mean, he, he grew up a Braves fan. He actually tweeted last night how the first baseball card he ever bought was a Ron Gant rookie card with Ron Gant listed as a second baseman, which is pretty awesome. Have you seen the new cover image on his Twitter profile? So his Twitter uh, handle is bringer of rain 20. And if you look at the cover image on his Twitter profile page, it's a close up of a weather map with these enormous thunderstorms heading towards Atlanta, which <laughs> I think is awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, for, for the Braves, the other thing about it is that the Braves have always been a team that kind of like, um, you know, they've never really carried huge payrolls. Um, and they've shied away from they, – they've signed a lot of their own guys to big extensions, like Freddie Freeman, um, even Craig Kimbrell a few years ago. And I guess they did make a splash for B.J. Upton, which didn't go so well. But this allows them to kind of make a splash, but it's low risk, as we said. It's just one year. So they could sort of say, hey, like, we're, we're really investing in this team, but at the same time they know it's like they, they're really hedging a little bit. Yeah, and like I said, we, we went into Donaldson in depth a couple weeks ago, so you should go listen to that. And one of the things we looked at was, uh, you know, his sprint speed, which obviously declined. He's older. He's had lower body injuries. That all makes sense. Uh, but I thought this was an interesting tweet from David O'Brien of The Athletic. Donaldson, uh, you know, says he's looking forward to getting off the turf, right? Obviously, in Toronto, there's a lot of turf. And I hadn't even thought about this. Tampa Bay, in the same division, also has turf. So he's playing 90 games a year on turf. And he said he noticed a major difference playing a homestand in Cleveland after being traded. So that's it. That's you know, it's a narrative that writes itself, I guess, if he stays healthy, but it's interesting to see if that will help him. Now, here's my question. The Braves won the division last year. The Braves right now are the quote-unquote hot team because they just made, you know, two big signings on the same day with likely more to come. Are they the best team in the National League East? I feel like if you polled fans just due to the recency bias of the division winner signing Josh Donaldson, they'd say, yeah, by like 10 games. I don't know if that's true. If you look at Steamer, uh, they are one of the best projection systems out there. They right now have the Braves at an 80, 80 excuse me, as an 83 win team, six games behind the Nationals. Now, I will say that's probably a, a bit heavy. I don't think they are six games worse than the Nationals, but I don't know that I could sit here and say they are definitively better than the Nationals right this second. And I'll explain why in a second. But what do you what do you say? Yeah, I don't see I don't see the six game gap. I I see the, I think the Nats are better than people are thinking because the, the narrative around the Nats is they didn't win the division last year. And they're losing Harper, so it's sort of like womp womp. Like this is this, this is this is where the demise starts. I actually think more likely it could be next year when Rendon leaves, where you really have to to see to see to see a dive. But um, who's sort of quietly been one of like the five best players in the National League for like three years. But um, I think I put him in my top five of my hypothetical MVP vote. There's, there's there's definitely kind of like almost like a 2001 Mariners vibe with the Nationals, where it's like they had in 2000 they made the playoffs and good, but then they lost a Rod, and it was sort of like oh well they're they're gone now. Um, and then they went on 116. They got each year and they won 116 games. I could see that happening with the Nats where, like, they lose Harper, but they go out and sign. I mean, they made Suzuki, signed Suzuki, which was a, a sort of a shrewd, under-the-radar move, and they're going to make other moves. I can easily see them just vaulting back atop the division. The 2019 Nationals <laughs> are guaranteed to win 116 games. You heard it here first. Um, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, I look at the two cores – and I think I like the Nationals better. You know, Acuna and Soto, for me, somewhat cancel each other out because they're both very good. Uh, Scherzer is clearly the best pitcher on both either team. I think that 
Steven Strasburg still can be that type of pitcher. Obviously, the Nationals still have Turner and, as you said, Rendon and uh, Victor Robles, who I feel like we forgot about Victor Robles. I'm really big on him. And, you know, there's still holes there to be filled for certain. I just I think it's close. I still would pick the Nationals today. And yeah, you, four moves to come. Well, there's a couple of things. You pulled some numbers here that kind of show the Braves' offense last year was a little not good. N- not good. Twenty <laughs> <laughs> um, third in hard hit rate, eighteenth in expected weight on base, thirtieth in barrels per batted ball. Thirtieth, which have the lowest barrel per batted ball rate in baseball, uh, as we have defined on the show many times. A barrel is the quote unquote perfect batted ball. It's the best combination of exit velocity and launch angle. The Braves. They that on 5% of their batted balls, that was the lowest. The Yankees were at almost 9%. And these are hugely valuable batted balls. So having even a difference of a couple dozen over the course of a season matters. Part of that was Ender Inciarte. We love Ender Inciarte. His glove is amazing. He had 519 batted balls last year. He had eight barrels. That is a 1.5% rate. Uh, there were also a couple of notable overperformers. Charlie Culberson, who is now uh, somewhat of a cult hero in a second city for his huge game, cl- you know, clutch game-winning home runs. Had a 335 weighted on base. That's pretty good. He had a 260 expected weighted on base. There were 312 hitters last year with 250 plate appearances. No one had a larger overperformance uh, than that 75 point gap. Johan Camargo, who we'll talk about in a second, also was on the top 20 there. And Dansby Swanson has just gone two straight seasons without hitting. In the last two years, he's hit 235, 308, 359. The 77 OPS, I know he had a, uh, a hand or a wrist injury that he had to overcome. I'm not convinced that they shouldn't just trade or demote him and put Johan Camargo at shortstop. I know they won't because they're going to make Camargo their Zobris type, which makes sense. If you remember their roster in the NLDS versus the Dodgers, the bench was really, really weak. I mean, they, that's The Dodgers had depth and the Braves did not. That's what that came down to. For sure. Although there's talk about Camargo playing some outfield. He's only played like one inning in the majors, so it's unclear if that's actually a viable thing. But even still, the fact that he could fill in at multiple infield positions gives him value, particularly since he hit from the left right. side. I don't think you can expect 162 games from Donaldson. I don't know that I expect Swanson to play shortstop all year long. And Ozzie Albies at second base, who, you know, we love Ozzie Albies on the show. Last year, in the first half, he was awesome. Yeah, th- uh, 318 on base, that's not that great, but 516 slugging is very good. So he was 20% better than average. In the second half, Ozzie Albies hit 226, 282, 342. That's a 67 Weighted runs created plus, where 100 is league average, and that is, you know, bad. That's yeah, bad. and as, uh, as Joe Sheehan pointed out in his uh, newsletter, even with the big April, he had a 282 OBP from the left side of the plate. And as a switch hitter, you know, you, you get most of your at-bats from the left side of the plate. So he had started the season as a leadoff hitter because he kind of fits that traditional profile, but actually the second half, Snitgard actually moved him down in the lineup when he was struggling. And you expect him to improve. You know, he clearly has some skills there, but what is he really? Is he, you know, he's... How you know it's unclear how good Ozzy Albies is. So the uh, the Nats are going to win one sixteen, and Ozzy Albies is bad. We're going to send Matt to Atlanta on the next flight. Um, uh, one thing the Braves did have going for them last year, obviously, was a very strong defense. Um, not just in Ciarte, but they had a, a plus nineteen outs above average. That was the second best in baseball, behind only the Brewers. And if you look at their depth chart, you know, in Ciarte in center, Acuna in left, and Duvall in right field. I love Adam Duvall. He did not hit. Hasn't really hit in two years. Um, I didn't really like Nick Markakis either. I feel like that is an obvious place for them to upgrade. Andrew McCutcheon makes so much sense there to me. I could see Michael Brantley. Maybe those are the well. two. Those are the two names that, that come to mind for me. That I think that they're 
you know, their their obvious fits there. Now, our friend, or I mean, they also, I could see them bringing back Marquecas on a modest deal too. I mean, they're going to, and it's just going to be so disappointing. Um, our friend Jim Duquette, former general manager of the Mets and Orioles, who now writes with us at MLB.com, had a piece this morning trying to figure out where would be the best trade fits for Corey Kluber, and his number one place was the Atlanta Braves, and I think that makes some sense in the sense that the Braves could probably use you know a number one type starter. You know, Mike Fultonevich was really good last year. Uh, Sean Newcomb was good until he wasn't. I know Kevin Gosman was better. I'm still not a huge fan of Kevin Gosman. And uh, Julio Terran just barely seems to be like a competent starter anymore. So that makes sense. Uh, Jim's argument or, or his suggestion was Ender and Ciarte and a pair of pitching prospects. Kyle Wright, who is currently the uh, number 29 overall prospect in baseball at MLBpipeline.com. And Luis Gohara, who is number 78. That is interesting. I, I don't think that's the kind of thing that would happen in reality, but... We know the Braves desperately need outfielders and two pretty good. I mean, you mean the Indians? Desperately. Oh, excuse me. The yeah. Indians, yeah. No, it makes sense to me because you know, going back to the Nationals Braves comparison, that's the, where the difference lies between the clubs. I'm always skeptical of, of Strasburg's health, but even still, when healthy, he's a step above anyone the Braves have, and then they also have Scherzer right. on top of that. So that's the, that's the big difference, and I think that's probably why the projection systems favor the, the Nats so much because the starting pitching. Because the Brazers, yes, Fulte had a nice year. And it's Newcomb, but like, how much do you really trust them? I don't really trust Newcomb that much. I trust Fultonevich a little bit more. Um, so the Braves should go, go go get a pitcher. And the pitcher I think they should go get is Madison Bumgarner. Wait, did we just have an entire Braves discussion without you bringing up Johnny Ventures? Um, true. <laughs> but let's talk about Bumgarner. Okay, so Madison Bumgarner uh, has been a pretty hot topic this week because there were reports that new Giants, uh, I don't know, GM, President GM. of Ops, yeah, so Farhan Zaidi, has indicated that Bumgarner may be available. Now, why wouldn't he be available? You know, of course, this is the kind of thing you talk about. The Giants uh, have not had a good two-and-a-half-year run. It's difficult to see them contending this year. Bumgarner is, uh, has one more year left before free agency, only $12 million, which is not that big a deal. And obviously, he's a huge name. Um, but there's also a question about, you know, how good is he right now? What sort of value would he bring back? And I think Whatever I kind of look at him almost as Paul Goldschmidt, even though Goldschmidt had a better year. Uh, the type of return that those guys might bring back is less than fans might think because they're thinking about the names and not the fact that they have you know one year left, which is a huge deal. Uh, Bumgarner turned 29 in August, so he's not old, but obviously he's had some injury issues the last two years. In 2017, only threw 111 innings due to injuring his ribs and shoulder in a dirt bike accident. And then last year, threw 129 and two-thirds innings because he broke his finger. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but someone hit a liner back at him, and he didn't really get back for like two months after that. I feel yeah. like you're looking at me like you remember who. No, but I was going to say, like the other thing about, about him is that like even despite that fact, he's still throwing a ton of innings. In his career, oh, yeah. like between the postseasons, like he had a, a year, a, a run of one, two, three, four, five, six straight years of 200 innings, which like doesn't happen anymore. And so for an age, for a 29 year old pitcher in this day and age, he has a ton of innings on his arm. I want to preface the rest of this by saying we're going to run through a bunch of stats that are kind of depressing about Madison Baumgartner. I don't think he's bad. I, I think he's still like an above average pitcher. I just don't know that I consider him like the top 10 ace that we might have a couple years ago. And I think that's, I mean, that's why to me, why... I think the Giants are going to trade him. New GM, who has no attachment to him. They're clearly trying to kind of rebuild a little bit. And I still think you could get someone to bite. Well, I agree with you they're going to trade him. My question is whether that happens now or in July, right? Because then, you know, hopefully he rebuilds some value in the first half of the season. Then, you know, what what do teams think about when they think about Baumgartner? They think about October, right? And now if you're a team, you know, in the playoff hunt in July and you're missing like a number one ace and you start having visions of him in October— I'm not saying it's not possible, but I, I almost wonder if that's the 
better path to take, especially if the team is already in last place by then, that the fans won't kill anxiety as much. I guess I just think that there's there's still teams. There's it's still nice to know you can give a guy a qualifying offer and get something if he leaves. Well, that's true. So getting him by, getting him before opening day. Um, has some value. I, I just I know that Zaidi is not connected to the glory days. I have a hard time believing the first thing he does in town is to trade Madison Baumgartner. You know, that's that's a lot. <laughs> it really is. Um, some numbers on Madison Baumgartner. Again, he's still pretty good, but it just wasn't elite. Last year, uh, had a 320 expected weighted on base. Uh, Major League average was, I believe, 311. So, you know, slightly worse than average, obviously, coming off injury. Similar to Mike Montgomery, Dylan Bundy, Marcus Stroman, Trevor Richards, you know, guys who are capable of more, but, you know, didn't really have great years. Uh, strikeout rate decline over, over the last few years. In his glory days, he was left to like 25%, 28%. The last two years, it was 22% and 20%. Uh, last year, he had a 35% hard hit rate, the highest of the four years of StatCast. And I thought this was interesting. Obviously, he pitches in San Francisco. That's an extreme pitcher's park. And when I ran some of the numbers over the last three seasons, so 2016 to 2018, and I looked at the difference between his expe- expected weighted on base and his actual weighted on base, it told sort of the story that I thought it would. Uh, if you look uh, on the road over the last three seasons, his expected was 314, his actual was 312. That makes a lot of sense. He basically got what he performed to. And at home, uh, his expected was 282 and his actual was 255. That makes sense too. So that was a 27-point overperformance, I think, just by pitching at home. But what was interesting to me is he just actually pitched better at home. You know, forget the difference between expected and actual. At home, his expected was 282. In a way, his expected was 314. So I don't really have a good answer to that. Maybe he pitches differently. Maybe it's home field advantage, whatever. But he was actually just better at home. And then on top of that, the outcomes benefited him. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Our Matt Kelly wrote a nice piece about Madison Bumgarner's value this week. And what he found was that his fastball was getting hit harder. So he combined four seamers, two seamers, sneakers, cutters into fastball. In 2015, his average fastball was 92.7. This year, 88.1. That's not a good trend. That's actually scary. I'm going to jump to a, a piece our friend, you know, Sarah's wrote at The Athletic. Um, his maximum velocity used to be he would touch 96, 97. Uh, this year, he barely touched 93. So that's all concerning, obviously. Uh, as Matt Kelly wrote, his strikeout rate, uh, excuse me, his whiff rate down from 22% to below 20. And this is, I think, the worst part. His slugging percentage in 2015 was 381. That's really good. This year, it was 458. So his fastball, which is what he sort of lives on, uh, a variety of fastballs, is just not as good. That's a problem. Yeah, but he just to me he does feel like a guy who's going to be able to kind of figure out ways to get still get people out and just given that his reputation is kind of someone who's a, a gamer or whatever you want to whatever whatever t- term you want to use and the fact that it's one year twelve million dollars I think if you try to trade him now there would be a lot and then you run the, if you wait till July you run the risk of him being mediocre and not being able to get well, anything for him no for sure so that's to me risk. to me it's I think this is you know. Far anxiety comes from has worked with teams that are pretty cold blooded. They're not very sentimental about moves that they make, right? Here's with the Dodgers, here's with the A's. Like these are teams that are like bottom line oriented. What's helping us win? I think it's gonna happen. Would you would you describe the return Seattle got for James Paxton as somewhat underwhelming? I think it's always tough with prospects because it's you teams really have their own value. Like I think the very like the, the, the way teams will, will value a guy like Justice Sheffield will probably vary wildly. I, I think there are probably some teams that have him as like a future number one or, you know, a two plus. Yeah. Other teams have him as like a three, four. That was a great way to avoid the question, though. So I'm saying like. It's, well, what do you think? Um, I, I thought it was underwhelming. 
I thought it was kind of fair because I also think that Paxton's track record is pretty. But would you say that Paxton has a higher trade value than Bumgarner right now? More yeah. more years of control and better performance over the last two years. Yes, he does have more. He does does have higher trade value. So then, what is Bumgarner actually going to return you? Less than that deal. But he does make. He's going to make. He's going to make. I guess he'll probably make as much money this year, and then next year Paxton will make more. I, um, I, I just I have a hard time thinking anyone's giving up like you know, two top one hundred prospects here. No, I think uh, you get one. I think you get one good prospect. Is what is what you'd, you'd hope to get. Um, so Matt Kelly, when he wrote his piece, laid out some potentially interested teams. There's no shortage of them. Milwaukee makes a ton of sense. Atlanta, as you just pointed out, they they I think above all other teams, the Braves always seem to like to have local guys. Like I don't think I can think of another team that collects guys from their backyard as much as the Braves do. Um, the Phillies make some sense. And also the Braves have a big the Braves fan base covers like all the South. So right. like the ba- I mean like you know. Bumgarner's from North Carolina, but right. it's still Braves country. So it's not like it's not like this. Like, you know, when they used to get all the guys from like East Cobb, like well, this yeah. is a. He didn't grow up as a Nationals fan. Yeah. Um, Houston was on his list. I, you know me, I love the idea of Houston trying to fix guys who were once great and now aren't. Um, you know, it'd be fun to see him go to Oakland. I don't think I could see that happening. The Yankees, Washington, like there's 20 teams that would probably like Madison Bumgarner. I think he gets traded in July. I feel like you think he gets traded soon. Yes. Okay. That's fair. Uh, speaking of guys who may or may not get traded, Robinson Cano. There's been a lot of talk about him getting traded potentially to the Mets. It's a very weird fit. The Mets have a lot. Of, I don't know. There's a lot of things the Mets need. I feel like if you're going to get Robinson Cano, you either need to replace Jeff McNeil, which no Mets fan wants, or you need to get rid of Jay Bruce and Dominic Smith and have him play a little bit of first and second, which I guess I could see. Um, the thing I think people are missing about Robinson Cano he still crushed the ball last year, right? Yeah, he was ninth uh, amongst players with uh, 250 plate appearances. He was ninth in expected weight on base. Right. Um, Obviously, he missed a lot of time with a PD suspension, and that's going to be a thing for him. But he has hit the ball. He's been an above-average hitter every year of his career, and last year he was he was better than that. He was still a star. Not that I expect that to happen for the remaining what five years of his contract. He's got five and 120 left. Man, so 24 five more years. So it's it's a big deal. That supposedly the report was that the, the Mariners were willing to chip in 10 million per year, so he'd be getting him for five five for 14 per year, so like five for five for 70, which is still a lot, but. Can I make a hot take right here? Some of the uh, rumors I've seen indicating that the Mariners would be so desperate to get rid of that contract that they would attach Edwin Diaz just to pay it down is insane to me. If you are trading Edwin Diaz, you need to get uh, hot talent lava, as Scott Boris would put it. Like I, I cannot see that happening just as a way to get rid of. And Cano, this this demonstrates the Cano thing demonstrates the the disadvantage that NL teams are at in the hot stove season when they can't sure. plan around having a guy get DH at bats. Like it makes a huge difference, especially with an older an older guy who still might value. It really changes the equation. That's why I think that's a big reason why I think he's a would be especially bad fit with the Mets. I actually think he's a better fit with the Phillies. Um because they could probably that would be a good way to figure out a way to get rid of Carlos Santana. We've talked about training a lot on this show. And if the if the Mariners got Santana, they could basically tell their fans, look, we're still like we're not totally giving up. It would clear a spot for Hoskins Kingry's been kind of a bust, or he could go play short. Like there's, there's ways it works for the Phillies. Um, but again, also Cano's got a no, full no trade. Well, that's the other thing. Everybody keeps talking about. Oh, he only wants to go back to New York. I have no idea if that's true. I, I can't imagine he's desperate to be on a rebuilding Seattle team for the next couple of years. So I would have to think there are some fits for him. But just in terms of that that contract and the fit, um, it's it's harder to find teams who would be willing to take that on unless the Mariners pay like seventy percent of it, which they're not going to. So I don't know. You think he's going to get traded? I think that's it's hard for me to find a real fit. Our, our own Mark Feinstein reported that the the 
Mariners are very motivated sellers here. So it'll be interesting to see what they can come up with and just how motivated they are. Okay. I'm going to say he does not get traded, but I feel like I'm going to be wrong about that. I just, <laughs> I just have a hard time finding a good fit for him. Um, the One of the two largest free agents out there is Bryce Harper. And everybody in the I've world. I've heard of him. Yes, he's he's quite good. Actually, I think people forget that uh, in the second half, he crushed the ball, uh, hit 300, 434 on base, 538. was one of the 10 best hitting lines in baseball in the second half. He's very young. He's very good. Hasn't necessarily been consistent, but obviously we know the talent is there. The big question for him is, can he play the outfield? If you look at the metrics, they all agree in various ways that he cannot. Uh, we had him as a minus 12 outs above average. That was fifth worth, worst among outfielders. DRS called him ne- negative 26. That was second worst. And UZR said negative 14, which was the worst. I will uh, admit I don't think he's a strong outfielder. I have a hard time believing he's literally the worst outfielder, and that hurts his value. If you look at fan graphs, he had a three and a half uh, war season, which was 49th. Baseball Reference had him at 1.3, just tied for 185th. Those are obviously based on different inputs of defensive metrics. And what I wanted to find out is when teams go and look at him and try to figure out how he'll age, they're going to want to look at those numbers and find out, is that just an indicator of poor skill, like he's not capable of playing the outfield, or is it something else? So I looked at this in a variety of ways. First thing I thought of is, well, did he just get slower? Is he not capable of getting to the ball? You may remember at the end of 2017, he had that very scary-looking knee injury where he slipped on a wet base in Washington. The answer is, uh, at least as far as sprint speed goes, he didn't really get slower. He's been in the 27 feet per second range each of the four years. He's been roughly average. You know, he was never a Billy Hamilton-like burner. Last year, he even stole 13 bases, which was his third highest total. And uh, he's basically been, you know, between the 59th percentile and 70th percentile each of the four years. So I don't think it's this. I also thought this was interesting. His fastest tracked run as a hitter or base runner in our four years of tracking came in the final month of the 2018 season when he hit 30.4 feet per second going first to third on an Anthony Rendon single. So it's not speed, right? I don't think he's too slow to play the outfield. Uh, A lot of people wanted to know, is it because he had to play center field a lot more? And that's true. He did. He played 477 and a third innings in center, three times more than he played in the previous five seasons combined. Uh, It's because Robles got hurt and Eaton got hurt and Michael A. Taylor couldn't hit it all. So he played a lot of center field. I don't think it's this either. Uh, I broke this down by position. As a center fielder, he had a minus five. That's above average. As a right fielder, he had a minus seven. In center field, uh, he was expected to make 91% of the balls hit to him, and he only caught 88, so that's minus three. As a right fielder, it was minus four. So as far as I can tell, equally ineffective in center and right, so I don't think it's that either. I also looked at whether it changed as the year went on. Remember, he got off to kind of a slow start, big slump, and then crushed the ball in the second half. No, the answer is not really. Uh, he was between minus one and minus four outs above average in five of the six months, except for in May when he was plus one. So I don't think it's that. Have we hit on anything that's useful so far? I'm, not, I know not yet. I'm checking things off. You're, the getting, you're getting to it. I'm waiting. All right. There's a couple things that he did change. Um, he changes positioning. I looked at the last three seasons and I looked at every outfielder who played uh, right field for at least 500 batters against And in 2016, he was incredibly shallow. He was 283 feet deep, tied for the shallowest of 71 qualifiers. In 2017, he moved back by seven feet, tied for 18th shallowest. And this year, he moved back five more feet, tied for the 39th shallowest. So if you look at the difference of 12 feet from 2016 to 2018, no one moved back more than he did. So that's interesting. That's something. I don't think it actually necessarily means anything, though, because remember we introduced our directional outs above average, trying to show if a guy was good or poor going back, going in, and he was sort of equally ineffective in all six directions. So I don't think it's that either, but at least that's something. 
This I did think was interesting. No one received easier chances than he did. 87 outfielders received one chance per team game. Harper's expected catch percentage was 90%. That means based on the opportunities he had, an average outfielder catches 90%. That is the easiest in baseball. And even the best outfielder cannot simply will difficult chances into existence. It can't be done. Now, here's what was interesting. He did have a problem on easy plays. So I sort of arbitrarily defined these as a 90% catch probability play or higher. And he converted uh, 97%. It sounds like a lot, but remember... These are easy. Yeah. You're supposed to get to them. That was actually in the 17th percentile. The previous year, it was the 88th percentile. So he wasn't making great plays on hard chances. He didn't get a lot of hard chances. And also, he didn't do great on easy chances. And so that was what was most interesting to me. Because I wanted to know, okay, well, how do you mess up some of these really easy plays? I looked at like 18 or 19 of these. And if you look at, well, excuse me, I looked at 18 of them that were below 50%. But if you look at some of these, one of them was just a double loss in the lights, like that's a thing that happens. It doesn't indicate your skill. Some of them, he was just super passive. These balls he could have gotten to, he just wasn't aggressive and let them bounce in front of them. A couple, he had really poor reads and uh, reactions. And these are the kind of things I can't wait until our, our burst and route running and reaction metrics are ready in the spring so we can go back and look at this again. And there were a couple he got to. He got to and hit him in the glove and he just couldn't close it. He couldn't seal the deal. Uh, he made an Anderson on Brian, uh, an error on Brian Anderson. Adam Duvall and Jay Bruce both had doubles that hit him right in the glove. So... I come away with this thinking I'm cautiously optimistic. Like he didn't perform last year. That is true. Those metrics are correct, but I don't think any of this tells me he's incapable of it. Uh, there's a somewhat of a narrative out there that he just didn't want to run into the wall or dive and get injured in his contract year. I suppose that passes the smell test. I'm not going to say it's true. Yeah, we don't know. It's true, but it certainly, it certainly like makes sense. So like, I think this is just showing how defensive metrics are still really complicated. Like, you know, teams are, are watching this and saying, why is it? Can he not run routes? Can he not run? I don't think it's any of those things. Uh, it's just a question of whether you can make him more aggressive and whether you should make him more aggressive next year. Yeah, and there's there's also the idea that, like, we're you know, there's always been the assumption that, like, defense doesn't slump. But, like, maybe we'll find out it that does. it kind of, kind of does in ways that we don't really fully appreciate just yet. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, some of these easy plays, like, you know, they can kill your metrics because they're so high probability and they just were not made. So I, you know, I don't think he's a first baseman next year. I know like people like to think he's going to play first base for the Yankees. Get back to me in three or four years on that. He's 26 years old. It'll it's also like if the Yankees signed him, they would just rotate the guys. Like I still don't believe, I still believe there's possibly Yankees signed them, but like trade Stanton, they could easily just rotate them between DH left field and right field and get to keep them fresh. Oh, uh, you mean judge Stanton and Harper? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's so. like that's not crazy at all. That's, that's talking about like what I'm talking about before about like AL teams have an advantage. They can like use the DH slot as like a method to keep guys healthy and also spread spread at bats around it. Like it's I, not it's not that far fetched. No, I 100% agree with you. And he's still going to end up with the Phillies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Lance Lynn, I don't know if you've been listening to the show for more than a year. First of all, thank you. We appreciate that. We talked a lot about Lance Lynn last year as a guy who I never really thought was going to do that well in free agency. And I remember actually went back and found today, uh, some articles who argue that heading in the last winter, he was going to get a $100 million contract, which seemed ludicrously insane to me at the time. I was <laughs> cold takes exposed. Yeah, really? I mean, I didn't think he was going to, I thought he'd do better than he did, but that was nuts. And part of the reason that I think um, there was a disconnect with Lance Lynn's value heading into last winter was because, sure, he had a 343 ERA with the Cardinals. That's fine. Uh, but nothing supported that. His his fielding independent pitching was 482. Um, his, his strikeout rate was below average. His walk rate was 
you know, below average, by which I mean worse than average. And in 2017, he had a 244 batting average on balls in play. It was the lowest of any starting pitcher, and that just does not seem like the Lance Lynn. I know. So he had to wait until March. He signed a one-year deal with Minnesota. I don't know. You know, he got off to a very bad start, and I don't know if that's because he missed some spring training. I certainly would believe that. But as I said, I also didn't think he was that valuable of a pitcher. Also, he had a qualifying offer on him. Those are the types of guys like Alex Cobb, uh, Greg Holland, who just got killed last year. So I thought this was fascinating. In 2017 with the Cardinals, he had a worse than average strikeout and walk. In 2018 with the Twins, he had a worse than average strikeout and walk. At the time he was traded, he had the highest walk rate of any pitcher who had thrown 100 innings. He could not throw strikes. So he gets traded to the Yankees and he puts up a 414 ERA. Nobody really pays attention to them, but I thought this was interesting. He, in 54 and a third innings with the Yankees, suddenly had a better than average strikeout rate, and he cut his walk rate in half. Uh, he had a 26% strikeout rate with the Yankees, up from 21% with the Twins, and he cut his walk rate from 13% to 6%. Now, I want to preface this. Everything I'm about to say is super small samples. I get it. Did you realize that? I got to find the stat because it's totally amazing. Yes, with the Yankees, he struck out 38 right-handed hitters and allowed one walk. And I watched the walk. It was to Randall Gritchuk. A little bit squeezed. <laughs> like 38 to 1 against righties. That That's is, pretty good. That is absolutely incredible to me. Um, his slugging percentage against righties from the Twins to the Yankees dropped by 50 points. Hard hit rate down 6 points. Ground ball rate up 6 points. He faced 50 righties. Uh, excuse me, 277 pitchers faced 50 righties from August 1 to the end of the season. His 33% strikeout rate was 26th, tied with Justin Verlander. That's good. His 0.9% walk rate was 6th, best of any starting pitcher. And his 32.5% rate between his strikeout rate and his walk rate was 10th behind guys like Sale Scherzer, DeGrom, and Hayter. A big part of that was simply his fastball, uh, his four seamers, two righty hitters. With the Twins, it was 68% in the zone around the edge. With the Yankees, 82% in the zone around the edge. Now, you may be asking yourself, what changed? Did something change? Um, he did move on the rubber quite a bit. With the Twins, he was two feet from the center of the rubber. With the Yankees, he was 2.6 feet away from the rubber. That's... Towards third base. Towards third base. That is a half a foot difference. And uh, it was credited to, you know, now ex Twins pitching coach Garvin Alston, who basically said what it allowed to do was make sure he was connected properly from his top half to his bottom half. That allows the ball to stay in plane just a little bit longer. Uh, that was from the St. Paul Pioneer Press. His expected weighted on base with the Twins, 329, 258 with the Yankees, top 15 among starting pitchers after July 31st, similar to Corey Kluber and Herman Marquez. I spent all last winter saying I didn't think Lanson was good. Now I've just spent like five whole minutes. <laughs> I don't think he's good, quote unquote. I don't think he's a. Top but he'll be he'll be a value guy now. Yeah, he's not he's not a top five starter. Obviously, he's not top fifteen. He's not even top thirty. Um, he's interesting now. Like I, I don't think teams are going to look at the two months with the Yankees and say, oh, that's what he is. You know, compared to his entire previous career. But I don't know. I feel like you could deploy him in interesting ways if he can get righties out. Because lefties hadn't changed. They still hit him pretty hard. But 38 to 1, strikeout to walk, that's amazing to me. I am uh, interested in any guy whose change on the rubber changed the performance. The first piece I read published in a major publication was like a 200-word story in 2004 about how Braden Looper moved on the rubber. And like, Looper. And they like converted his like first 20 saves when they signed with the Mets. And I even got a quote. I remember getting a quote. I'm sure our friend Jim Duquette does not remember this, but I remember like it being like a scrum at like uh, Shea Stadium and like getting like a random quote about like why they decided to sign Braden Looper. You got a quote from Jim Duquette at a scrum like 14 years ago? Yeah. Well, the next time Jim steps by your <laughs> desk, you absolutely need to ask him about that. There are good examples of guys moving on the rubber and having success. Uh, Blake Snell, I think, famously did that last year. We've seen Brad Peacock do it. 
uh, Chase Anderson. Now, it's probably true that more guys have done it and found no success. Like, this is not a thing you do for instant guaranteed outcomes. But I, I do like the idea, kind of what the pitching coach was talking about. It just it changes the the plane of the ball. Like this is a guy who throws eighty nine percent fastballs, you know. So if he's getting a little more inside on righties, getting weaker contact, um, throwing more strikes when he obviously wasn't before, that seems fascinating to me. Do you think he? I don't know. I, I look at him in two ways. I could see him for a team like the Rays or the A's who just desperately need someone who can suck up like league average innings, right? Like if you say, hey, for one year give me one hundred and eighty decent innings, that's fine. I don't know. Is he a can you see him as like an opener type against a stacked righty heavy top of the lineup like they did with Sergio Romo? <clears throat> Is that not maybe I don't know if he's into it, right? So if he's not open to it, fine. But I I, I don't want to there, there will be there will there, there there for the reasons you stated, there will be teams interested in Lance Lynn. He and no will, qualifying offer this Yes, year. for sure. So it'll be interesting to see where he ends up. And now 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 that you've you've sort of uh uh, unpeel the onion. Unpeel the onion on uh, what what uh, what changed for him. Now it'll be interesting to see. I flip flopped because last year I said oh, he's not that great, and this year I think he's at least interesting. Okay, finally, um, this is kind of cool. The Arizona Fall League wrapped up uh, last week, and if you don't know what the Arizona Fall League is, it's a kind of postseason you know, sort of minor league. I don't want to say all star circuit, but teams will send some of their best prospects uh, to face off against one another uh, in the Arizona uh, spring training sites, and so. What's fascinating about that for us is that we have the StatCast hardware at the Salt River Fields, which is where the Rockies and Arizona uh, Diamondbacks train. Now, there are six parks used in the AFL. We've got the gear at only one. So obviously, this is all very biased towards guys who happen to play in that park and do well. But we talk a lot about how you know the StatCast gear is a pretty good uh, scouting tool because I don't need to see more than one like high spin fastball or you know one awesome exit velocity to know that that's a skill a guy has. So um, you know we looked at it and it's it's fun because there's a lot of big names there like Ronald Acuna was in the AFL last year, David Bodie, and the year before like Cody Bellinger and Miguel and Duhar and Michael Kopek. So with the season wrapped up, I thought it'd be interesting to look at some of the guys who stood out again just in Salt River Fields if they did it in another park. Well, we don't have that, so. You know, no, the, the samples are the samples are notably small, but hey, that's, yeah. that's all this is all we have. Um, if you look at the uh, like the list of top exit velocities, some of these are big boy exit velocities, right? Uh, the number one exit velocity was 116.4 miles an hour from Daniel Johnson of the Nationals. I'm going to table that for a second because I'm going to get back to Daniel Johnson. Um, and I should note that was just the quote unquote regular season. Vlad Guerrero Jr. did get to 117 in the Fall Stars game, and uh, you know the the other guy on the top of that list. Peter Alonzo, who's someone we've talked about before. It's fun to actually see him get in front of the hardware. He hit one 116.3 miles an hour, harder than any Met has in the four years of StackS. I don't think it's a surprise that, you know, he can murder baseballs. Um, but it, it's cool. Only uh, two-tenths of 1% of batted balls this year in the majors got up to 114 miles an hour. And Johnson did it once. Alonzo did it uh, well twice if you round up from 113.8. Vlad did it in the game. Uh, Sam Hilliard of the of the Rockies crushed a home run, 114.8, and uh, Monty Harrison got one at 114.6. They need Monty Harrison so desperately to pan out. And also a name I'd never heard of uh, from the Cubs, Trent Giambrone. Sure, I did not pronounce that correctly. Got up to 114.7 miles an hour. I think so. that's the guy. There was like some around July 31st. There was like these rumors that like, oh, some Cubs prospect has left the game in like. Iowa. Everyone assumed he was getting traded, but he was. He just like had a crap. I don't remember that at all. Yeah. But um, I'll buy. I think it. I 
think that was him. So the, uh, the the name to stash away here for a moment is Daniel Johnson. We'll get back to him. Uh, the top pitch velocities, uh, you know, two guys topped uh, 100 miles an hour. Uh, Justin Lawrence, who is the number 21 MLB Pipeline Rockies prospect, got up to 100.9. That was his highest. I looked him up. It's interesting because he's almost like a Jordan Hicks sinker type. Uh, at high A, he had a 28% strikeout rate and a 63% ground ball rate. Now you know that Justin Lawrence can legitimately throw 100 miles an hour. The other name there was Nate Pearson, who is uh, the number four Blue Jays prospect. He's an interesting name. He only threw one and two-thirds innings last year. Season started late because of a back injury, and then he fractured his arm and got hit by a liner. If you're looking to know if Nate Pearson is healthy, well, he's throwing 100 miles an hour in the AFL, so that's a good sign. The spin rate ones I thought were kind of funny just because what teams these guys are. Uh, if you look at the top four-seam fastball spins, and remember the major league average here was about 2,260 RPM. Uh, number one was a Red, so- Red Sox prospect, Darwins and Hernandez, but every single other pitch on the top 10 list of four-seam fastball spin was from Houston prospect, J.B., I don't know how to say his name, Busakakis? That's totally not right, but I assume you can probably know what I'm talking about. Um he is a Houston prospect, and we know that the Astros like spin rate. So if you look at the curveball spin rate list, top three, Trent Thornton, who was an Astros prospect until he was traded to Toronto for uh, Eledmus Diaz recently. But I think that's somewhat telling about the Houston Astros and how they are searching for spin. I thought that was kind of cool. The top pop time, 1.89 seconds, was from Elise Sanchez, who is the number 27 Mets prospect. I looked up the scouting report. He is a plus receiver who blocks well and has a cannon of an arm. That makes sense. So 1.89 seconds, well above the average of 2.01. And finally, I want to get back to Daniel Johnson because I'd never heard of him before. I can't say I follow the, you know, mid-level minor league outfielders for the Nationals. Step it up, Mike. He had, uh, you know, like I said, the top regular season AFL exit velocity, 116.4 miles an hour. He had four of the six best tracked outfield arm strengths topped at a 100.9 miles an hour he got up to 30.7 feet per second on an infield out one of the very few guys to top 30 now that tells me that this guy has many tools which is cool again he probably played more in salt river than anybody so fine i don't want to overlook that um but he's 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 interesting in a scouting sense like now i've i've learned like he can do these three things really well in 2017 he had a pretty good year at low and high a 22 homers 459 slugging only hit 145, 260, 177 in the AFL. I'm not going to worry about that too much because it's only a handful of plate appearances. Uh, these skills do not guarantee success. But if you're looking for a guy to follow, you heard about Daniel Johnson here first. Maybe the Nationals will trade him. because Remember the name, folks. You heard it here first. Um, or maybe you didn't if you are you know, following the Washington Nationals farm system very closely. Uh, you've probably heard enough of my voice for now. That is our show. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Catch you next week.